Beloved saints, the grass withers and the flower fades, but this, the word of our God, is eternal and abiding. Uh, Let us give our attention to the reading of it. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went out, uh, sorry, went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have the authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. He said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has more uh, will be that to everyone who has more will be given, but the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Uh, since the reading of our God's word, let us ask His blessing on our time in it this morning. Our gracious God, you dwell within the pages of your word, and we long to know you. We long to see you revealed within the scriptures. And so we ask that you would open to us the beauty of your word, that you would open our eyes and our hearts, that we might behold the King of glory, and that you would give us faith to receive all that we hear in your word, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Seems like everywhere you go these days, uh, there's those inspirational posters up on the walls. Uh, you know, the, the picture of nature or somebody on a cliff or something like that, or a uh, uh, lighthouse in a storm. And uh, they all have, you know, inspirational sayings at the, at the bottom. And one that's making a comeback, it's an old saying, but it's this. A ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. And really, it's, it's actually a very profound statement because it gets at the issue of purpose, the reason something exists for what it's made. 
If your greatest concern is safety, you're, you're never going to leave the harbor because leaving the harbor is risky. It's dangerous out on the ocean. But on the other hand, if you're never going to go on the high seas, why do you have a ship? <laughs> Ships are made for sailing. Ships are made for risk. Of course, we know the point of the saying. It's not to advise you on whether or not to purchase a boat. It's not about ships really at all. It's about us. There's always a temptation that we will face in life to play it safe. Uh, To live life without risk. But that's not why you were created. And the reason is simple. You were created in the image of a God who takes risk. A God who refused to play it safe. And you, made in his image, you were created with a purpose, and that purpose wasn't safety. And that's our struggle. We don't like to be told what to do. We don't like to take risks. We don't like to serve, to put the needs and the comfort of others before our own needs and comfort. We want to be in charge of our lives. We want to live our lives in safe, comfortable, place of control. And God threatens all of that. And so we're faced with a choice. Serve ourselves or serve God. Serve safety and security or serve something bigger, more important and eternal. As we look at our our passage today in this parable of, of the minas, the point's really this. Following Jesus is risky business. It doesn't mean safety but taking risks for his sake. And that's okay. And that's what we're going to see as we look at it. And before we jump into the parable in earnest, I want to spend a few minutes uh, addressing the power of expectations when it comes to what kind of kingdom Jesus' disciples were looking for, because it's often what we're looking for. And then after that, I do want to jump into the parable in earnest and look uh, and see how powerful our understanding of God is when it comes to whether or not we are going to let our fears control us. Whether or not we let our fears control us will depend upon who we believe God is. That's what I want to show you from this parable this morning. Uh, Verse 11 tells us why Jesus told this parable They were drawing near to Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was about to appear immediately. They thought that things were about to get really good. Jesus' popularity had never been uh, higher. Uh, Crowds were following him wherever he went. Demons obeyed him. There was talk of making him king. And as they were drawing near to Jerusalem... They were expecting their friendship with Jesus over the last three years uh, to really pay off. The assumption was the closer you are to Jesus, the better it will be for you. (laughs) They were thinking they were about to be heroes, celebrities, insiders, and sit in seats of power. 
And sure enough, I mean, as, as they entered Jerusalem in just a few days, as we will see uh, in the coming weeks, crowds greeted him with a royal welcome. Everyone was excited, thinking that their enslavement to Rome, who was currently in power over Israel, that that, that enslavement was drawing to a close. This is what they were expecting as they drew near to Jerusalem. They simply had not been listening. In chapter 17, Jesus told them as as clear as day, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that that are visible. You're not going to look and say, oh, there it is, here it is. Chapter 18, he told them what was going to happen when they got to Jerusalem. That he was going to be betrayed, handed over to the Gentiles, mocked, spit upon, beaten, flogged, and murdered. But it wasn't what they wanted to hear. It wasn't what they expected. It just didn't make sense to them, and so they didn't listen. Now, if safety is what Jesus is looking for, (laughs) Jerusalem is the last place he should be going. But his focus wasn't on safety. That's not to say that he was reckless, that he was, you know, uh, exports, you know, adrenaline junkie with a death wish. Um, Let's see if we can get in and out of Jerusalem alive. Let's go bring the camera crew. That's not it at all. Jesus earnestly prayed, Father, if there's any other way, spare me. But of course we ask, any other way for what? Well, he's been telling us why he came. He came to seek and to save the lost. What he's saying is, Father, if there's any other way to save these sinners that doesn't include me dying this horrific death at the hands of the Romans, let's do that. But there was no other way. To save sinners, he had to be willing to endure what they deserved. He had to be willing to die the death that sin deserves in their place. He had to be willing to sacrifice everything for those he loved. Success in his mission could could only come if he was willing to pay the ultimate price. He had to risk everything in order to, to receive the reward he sought. That is the way. And understanding that, he considered the risk worth it. He he could have stayed safe in the harbor, but that's where he would have been safe. But that wasn't his mission. Knowing what awaits him in Jerusalem, he does not slow his stride, he does not change his course. He keeps going straight, and then he tells a parable to help us see how that reality of what he's doing affects us and and how we live and how we approach risk and uncertainty as his disciples, as his followers. He tells this parable, he says, leaving town in pursuit of a kingdom, a nobleman entrusts a few of his servants with a mina each, which was a significant uh, piece of money, 
Uh, and, and those servants were supposed to take those minas and engage in business. Basically, he's saying, I, I'm leaving my estate with you to manage my affairs and my absence. And then the parable focuses in on, on three of those servants. And I want to start uh, with the one who took it and wrapped it up in a handkerchief and kept it safe in verse 20. Then I'll come back to the other two. Uh, when the master comes back, that servant hands the mina that his master gave him, the, the actual coin that his master gave him, back to him and said, I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. He says the reason that he didn't do anything was because he feared the master. I was afraid of you. You were a severe man. In other words, I was terrified that if anything went wrong, you'd be angry with me. And I was paralyzed by that fear. What if this goes wrong? What if, what if that doesn't work? And so on. And paralyzed by fear, he did nothing. But then seeking to justify himself, he says, but you take what you didn't deposit, you reap what, where you didn't sow. In other words, look, you take what you want. What difference does it make what I do? You don't need me. But the master's command was, was simply to engage in business. There were no specifics on how. There was no demand on results. The only command was do something. And he did nothing. But whom does he blame? He blames the master. The master's too mean. The master doesn't need me. Why bother? Why try? And then he acts like he did something noble. He says, look, I have your miner right here. All clean and shiny. I wrapped it in a handkerchief. Yes, I disobeyed, but I did it with flair. But of course, blaming the master is just making excuses. It's not really why he disobeyed. Now, now I hope it's clear that in this parable, Jesus is the master. He wants his people to carry on his business, his affairs, in his absence. And that means obedience to his word, which is often unpopular. It means evangelism, telling others about Jesus. And it means using the gifts that he has given each of us, sacrificially serving others. That's what he expects from each and every one of us. So what is it that keeps us from obeying? That's, the parable reveals two reasons. Two things that keep us from obeying our Lord. First, there are simply those who don't want to be ruled. We saw that in verse 14, uh, that, that there's this great entourage of subjects that chase after the nobleman and say, we don't want to be ruled by you. And indeed, in just a few days, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, Pilate will say, isn't he your king? And they'll say, he is not our king, we have no king but Caesar. We don't want to be ruled by this man. For some, refusal to obey God is just a refusal to acknowledge that he is God and that we are not. 
and that he has the right to rule over us. In other words, refusal to obey is often simply nothing more than arrogance. But for some, it's fear that keeps them from obeying. Really, it's, it's fear of failure. We fear consequences. We fear losing comfort, losing security, losing health, freedom, or our lives. And when fear keeps you from obeying God, it's sin because you're placing those fears and and what you fear losing above God himself. You're believing that your actions are ultimate and not the God who chooses how to use those actions. The call of Scripture is to act in good faith, to obey his word, trusting that that he is the one who gives increase or withholds it. Put bluntly, we are paralyzed by fear because we trust ourselves too much and our God too little. Now here's the most startling point. It's it's how the master responds to the wicked servant. He says, I will condemn you with your own words. You knew that I was a severe man. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, you might have it with interest. Basically saying, if that's who you think I am, that's who I'll be to you. If you think I'm a merciless tyrant who cares only about the bottom line, then why didn't you do something to increase that bottom line, no matter how little? Psalm 18 puts it this way. With the merciful, I show myself to be merciful. With the crooked, I make myself torturous. To some degree, how you view God will determine how he treats you. If you think all he cares about is results, then he will demand results. As Jesus said elsewhere, with the judgment, you pronounce judgment, you will be judged. With the measure you measure, you will be measured. To those who think Jesus is about gaining power, he will meet you as a power-hungry tyrant. So what's the alternative? (laughs) Because that doesn't sound very fun. That's what we find in the other two servants. These two immediately begin to engage in their master's business. The first... Uh, reports a tenfold gain. The second, a fivefold gain. But Jesus doesn't focus on the difference of return. He praises both of them. He rewards both of them. And he uses the word faithful to describe their work. Not successful, faithful. He does not say, well done, good servant, because you have been successful. He says they have been faithful. Refusing to let uh, fear paralyze them, they set out and did something. And their labors were blessed. Not identically, but that's not what matters. The focus here is on the fact that they served their master. Ultimately, 
That's just a reflection of who they saw their master to be. Did you see how both responded to them? Your mina has made ten more. Your mina has made five more. In other words, both understand that without the Lord first giving to them, their labors would never have done anything. What's happened is the Lord's gift to them has been blessed as it has been taken to do to others. Everything started with, with his gift to them, his service to them. And their natural response was service back to him, service to others because of his gifts. And the master rejoiced. And he gave them more. And he even took the one mina from the wicked servant and gave it to the one with ten. And he sets the faithful servants in places of, of leadership because they've demonstrated a willingness to serve in faithfulness. This parable is a warning. Not everyone will have the same gifts or resources. That's, that's not what concerns the master. It's what each one does with what he or she has been given that matters. The master doesn't count results so much as he counts faithfulness. If your heart's anything like mine, you're you're probably looking around your life now and wondering, what have I accomplished for Jesus? Wondering whether or not you are a faithful servant or maybe you're more like the one who, who took the gifts of the Lord and wrapped them in a handkerchief and hid them. Beloved, be careful not to look around and compare yourself to others by results. The one who made the five minus could have looked over at the one who made ten and went, what am I even doing? Why am I even trying? This guy's twice as successful as me. There's, there's no possible way the Lord will be pleased with my, my labors. And yet nothing could be farther from the truth. The master was just as pleased with the second as he was with the first. The better question to ask is not what results am I producing, but what is the Lord calling me to be faithful in today? How is the Lord calling me to use the gifts that he's given me to serve him and bless others? Because faithfulness starts small and it gets bigger. Moses and David did not start off as the leaders of Israel and the king of Israel. They started off with sheep. Let's see how you do with these. Then they were given charge over God's people. And the same will be true with you. Our tendency is to show up with aspirations of greatness and want to be given leadership and authority where we can demonstrate just how awesome we are. And the Lord says, no, prove yourself in the little things and the bigger things will follow. Do you want to see the future leaders of our church? Look around and see who has a broom in his hands. Because that's probably the future leader. They're being faithful in the little things. They're serving because they see God as the one who first served them. 
Those who simply want positions of power don't get who God is. They think he's a tyrant and heaven help them on the day they meet him as one. This principle applies in so many ways. Young people, you're probably thinking about marriage one day. You might say things like, I just want to get married. Or I just wish the Lord would give me an opportunity to have a family. And yet the question is, what are you doing with the little things to prepare for marriage? Men, how do you treat your mom? How do you treat your sister? That's how you'll treat your wife. Do you help? Do you sacrifice? Are you serving, being responsible, and self-disciplined? Because if not now, how will you suddenly become that when you're a husband? Women, how do you submit to those in authority? Your father, do you listen? Do you help? Do you serve? Sacrifice for others? Because if not, how will you suddenly become those things when you're a wife or a mother? How you see God will be reflected in how you live. If you see him as a tyrant, you will behave like one. If you understand him to be a servant, you will start to love and serve others. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you believe that, it will lead you to be about his business in this world. And it will be costly. It will be painful. It will lead you to focus more on the opportunity to serve others and less on what the results will be. And you will surrender those results to the Lord. Yes, there will be times when you fail. There will be times when you make the wrong decision. But you must surrender that as well. Trusting that that the Lord can build something beautiful out of a thousand imperfect attempts. He is the gracious master who is doing something beautiful in and through his servants when they step out in faith and they seek to be about his business. There's a meal before us. And it may be the scariest meal you ever see. Because the Lord's Supper comes with a catch. It comes with a choice. It comes with a call and a decision to be made. First, it betrays what awaited Jesus in Jerusalem. Betrayal to the Gentiles. Mockery. Shameful treatment. Beating, flogging, and murder. And then it says, if you would follow him, this is what awaits you. Being his child is not a call to power, but a call to service, a call to take up the cross. And that means coming to this table is risky. It's scary. It's an invitation to risk. And coming to this table means, Lord, my life is yours to do with as you will. Even if it's dangerous. 
Lord, a ship in harbor is safe, but that is not what ships are for. Do with my life as you would. And yet with risk comes a promise. The Bible says that if you would suffer with him, you will be glorified with him. If you lose your life for his sake, you will find it. If you follow your master into the unknown, you will one day hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Even as Jesus told his disciples what awaited them in Jerusalem, he assured them that death would not have the final word, that he would rise again on the third day. And the same is true for you. If you place your eternity in his hands, death will not have the final word. It will be reversed. You will live with him for all eternity in heaven. And that means that there is truly no safer place to be than following Jesus wherever he leads. And so I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive the Lord's Supper uh, this morning. Savior, your ways are not our ways. Your ways scare us, and we're easily paralyzed by fear. Forgive us. But more than that, free us from our fear. Help us to remember that you call us to faithfulness, not results. Help us to trust you that as we step out into the unknown, that you will keep us humble in success. You'd save us from doubt and failure. Teach us to entrust the results to you and to always use your gifts to serve you and to serve others, we pray. Amen.